This week on A Lively Experiment. I want to again remind Rhode Islanders that the level of risk in Rhode Island because of coronavirus is low. In a week dominated by news of the coronavirus, Governor Raimondo calls for caution. And Joe Biden bounces back from long shot to front runner in the Democratic presidential race. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us this week for a Reporters' Roundtable discussion, Boston Globe reporter Ed Fitzpatrick, Target 12 investigative reporter Steph Machado, and Ian Donis, political reporter for the Publix Radio. Welcome to A Lively Experiment. It is great to have you with us. What a difference a week makes. Joe Biden is on the comeback trail, and here at home, as news about the coronavirus spreads, the governor is trying to contain the disease and the public's fears. And she had a lengthy press conference on Thursday. Our cameras were there. Here's a little bit of what she said. We now have a team of CDC officials here on the ground in Rhode Island. They arrived a couple of days ago and they are here with us working on a daily continuous basis with the Department of Health. We here at the state have directed all state employees who have traveled to China, Iran, Italy, South Korea or Japan in the last 14 days and going forward to stay home from work for a period of 14 symptom-free days. I'm asking all Rhode Island employers to consider implementing a similar policy. The state has also set up a special hotline. Uh, the governor said, don't go to the hospital or go to your doctor's office. You can call this number that we've put up, 401 222 8022. So that was the major news out of the press conference. Ed, I know you were there. You were boots on the ground. What was your takeaway coming back? This was the first really major one they've had in a while. Yeah, I mean, part of the uh, news coming out of it was that they had five members of a team from CDC here, uh, an uh, epidemic intelligence service team. And they're here, I think, in large part to help with the tracing of contacts, because we've got 200 people in the state now who are in uh, quarantine at home for 14 days. So there, um, and you had two, a faculty member and a student go to school after coming back from the trip. So the, they were in contact with a lot of people. So I think they're, tra they're uh, contacting those people, making sure they have what they need to stay at home for 14 days so they contain this to that trip. It's kind of like being on administrative leave with pay, right? <laughs> yeah, and part of the challenge for elected officials like Governor Raimondo is that they want to get good information out there and assure the public while at the same time not uh, fanning too much anxiety about it. We're taping this Friday. There are only two confirmed cases so far in Rhode Island. There will likely be many more, but life is not grinding to a halt. So I think we see Governor Raimondo trying to strive for that balance. Yeah, and she urged, you know, schools and colleges to cancel their international trips, um, which a lot of them are already doing. We'll see if that turns out to sort of be the right choice, depending on how many different countries this ends up spreading to. But obviously Italy is such a popular place for, well, probably Rhode Islanders, but also just everyone to travel abroad and study abroad, and that's where a lot of the cases have been. I also wonder, 
you know, uh, Governor Baker just to the north, who we have lots of comparisons with, he was holding virtually daily press conferences. And a lot of people are like, where's the governor been? She's doing, you know, she's trying to exude life goes on. But I also wonder whether, you know, to, as we say, feed the beast, mm. everybody kind of wants to see. And I wonder if that would, would you think that would be too much or whether that would be appropriate to have a little bit more of a public face on this. Yeah, they had a press conference on Sunday. They had a, a conference call on Monday and then a, a press conference yesterday. I, I don't think you can do enough at a moment like this. This is what everybody in Rhode Island is focused on, and they need information, you know, because if, if you don't have the facts, you, you hear rumors, and, and, you know, there are daily updates now with the number of people who are being tested, uh, what the results are, and, and just getting that information out, like the phone numbers and where to go. I, I think it's important to keep the communication going. You wonder for the long run how this is going to affect other things going on in, in state government. I mean, life goes on, right? State government and nationally, too. I mean, one of the side uh, effects is the economy, and this is going to have a big effect on the rate of national economic growth this year that will filter into the presidential race. So besides the health impact, there's also the economic impact to keep an eye on. Yeah, and you also wonder statewide, you know, up at the General Assembly, walking and chewing gum at the same time, right? Yeah, they, you know, they had a hearing about this last night, and, I, you know, I think that uh, when you want to talk about it and you want to be informing the public, but they also want to get other stuff done, right? They want to be able to just do their regular business and get their agenda done and get the budget passed. So I think there's a little bit of a balance. Do they need a daily on-camera briefing? It depends on if we're if we're getting new cases on a daily or weekly basis. Absolutely. If we're going to stick it to for a little while, maybe you don't need every day, but you need to at least be putting on information every day. And yeah, I do think every day we've at least had an email from the health department. A couple we of had emails. A, we had a conference call with the health director. There's been a couple on-camera briefings. If there's nothing new from the day before, we don't necessarily right need them on camera. But right. it. But if there's something new to share. They need to share. They need to share it on camera for the public to see. It, it was funny, and this is just a little bit of how the sausage is made. Uh, they had that, that conference call, and I could hear everybody <laughs> typing. typing. Yeah, yeah. They used, I, heard, I watched the Channel 12 report, and I was like, "Who is that typing?" It was almost like you know, with the with the uh, sign language yeah. guy. You're like, somebody's really going after yeah. that thing. Here's but they had to use that as the soundbite, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah, yeah. they kept so. asking you to mute your your phone. There were some it, muting I issues. There were been... some technological muting yeah. issues. With so them. maybe better. Or just have the cameras up, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ed's the print reporter here, so he doesn't have to worry about that as yeah, much. That's true. That's true. <laughs> just yeah. just make me. up the quotes, right, Ed? As they always no, used no, to. No. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, uh, uh, life goes on. The uh, grand jury is continuing to uh, subpoena witnesses. This is the uh, convention center case, of course, that's focusing a lot on Speaker Mattiello. Ian, there was a little bit of a lull here. This is continuing to go. We haven't had you on, I don't believe, uh, since this convened. So your thoughts kind of as it's going together, we don't know what's going on behind grand jury, but this is there's going to be an effect on the Speaker and the, and the General Assembly, obviously, depending on how this goes this session. Absolutely, Jim. And this has raised the temperature in the House of Representatives, I think people are feeling the the burn a little bit or feeling the the glare of this. And, but it's very hard to say where this is headed. This could go about eight different ways. There are a lot of other things in the mix. There's the Jeff Britt case. There's the fact that Barbara Ann Fenton Fung has announced that she's going to run against Speaker Mattiello as the Republican candidate later this year. So, I mean, the best case scenario for Speaker Mattiello right now is if he has a hard-fought 
ballot re-election race for his state rep seat against Barbara Ann Fenton Fung, life could get a lot more complicated. And the fact that he has not been called to uh, appear before the grand jury so far leads most observers to believe that he is a focus of this investigation. But, you know, beyond that, there's just a lot of speculation at this point. Yeah, I, I did a story a couple of weeks ago about that district that the speaker uh, represents uh, went for Trump pretty strongly in, in 2016. So, you know, people are saying it, it's, it's kind of a perfect time to challenge him. Um, you know, he's got all these issues going on with the grand jury, um, with the Jeff Britt case having a pretrial conference on March 10th. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the presidential politics is going to be front and center this year, so it's a, it's a tough time to run for re-election in that, in that Cranston district. Yeah, he's come close to losing re-election um, to Steve Fries in the past, but held on to it, held on to his speakership despite the opposition from the Reform Caucus, and so um, he's someone that's managed to sort of hold on to his power. The question is whether this story, the Jeff Britt case, and other cases are going to have an effect on him, and that's what we're waiting to watch. What about the larger issue, the budget? They've, st- you know, that's been kind of in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hit the February break, and then, as you know from being up there for years, Ian and Ed, they, they, um, they kind of it's this race. They start to the committees, and then you hit the April vacation. And I hear a lot of finance committee hearings of you know, oh, we can't really do this. You know, the governor's saying, let's tax this or have a fee, and that all gets rolled back. And that's her, her budget is predicated on that. So I wonder, and you're up there covering some of the, the marijuana issues. I wonder going forward, your thoughts, has there been any rumblings about, okay, how are we going to bridge this gap on the budget, or is it still too early? Well, as we often know, Jim, the legislature seems to muddle through, and, you know, there's some blue smoke and mirrors and uh, approaches are used to patching those big budget holes that we have most years. So far, I think the House is trying to keep its head down. They did pass some uh, fairly significant bills early on before the February break having to do with guns and some other real issues. So I think they're trying to take a workmanlike approach with this issue of the grand jury being in the background. But as far as specifics on how the budget deficit will be closed, that's still uh, off in the future. Yeah. You're up there. What are you hearing? Well, you know, I, th- I think there's just they're doing the hearings now, sort of in sort of full force on the various budget articles, but they're not I'm not hearing a lot from leaders on what specifically they're going to keep in and cut out. We know that a lot of the new taxes and fees, or the you know extension of sales taxes. Um, to various new objects are never super popular with legislative leaders. They helped the governor, you know, close the budget for her part, but it it seems like they're going to have a tough job to to close it up. But I think we still have to wait a little bit to see exactly what they're going to do. Seems like Groundhog Day up there every year, right, Ed? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, Ian's right. A lot of uh, significant bills have been addressed early on, but uh, we just got a new tool from the Secretary of State where you could see. Uh, what the chances of bills passing are uh, that are introduced early in the session versus late. And late in the session, you have a very good Is percentage. that coming out of Las Vegas or out of the Secretary of State? <laughs> on, this has got a 35% chance of passing. Yeah, What's yeah. The, Wa- uh, wagering is encouraged. I think Twin River might jump in on that. No, I don't. But, uh, the, uh, yeah, you know, early in the session, the percentage is very low uh, for passage of the bills. But if it's introduced in June, it, it's, it's going through. And as we know, traditionally, the reason why the budget is passed so late in the session is because the... Chits. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the speaker 
maker, the leadership gets uh, lawmakers to support it and kind of holds their priorities hostage until they support the uh, leadership plan for the budget. Well, speaking of bills that probably have now zero chance of passing, there was a bill that all of a sudden, like within the last 24 hours, it took on a life of its own. Ed came as a good reporter, he came very prepared today. Ed, why don't you set the table on this? And it's appropriate. We did not plan it this way. You would think we did. We have a lot of reporters who want to talk about a bill concerning reporters. Yes, it was uh, the Stop Guilt by Accusation Act uh, introduced by uh, Senator Cano. And it's, uh, she since pulled it and apologized for introducing it. But uh, from a First Amendment point of view, this was one, it, it'll go down in the Hall of Fame of one of the worst bills ever. It, you know, the, the idea was that uh, if uh, you reported on something and didn't follow up on someone being accused of a crime, you could be fined up to $10,000. It would compel, the, the government would compel newspapers to do something. It would just, and it began, ironically enough, quoting the First Amendment, but it would just trample on the First Amendment. It was, it was outrageous, and I'm glad to see it's been pulled. And, uh, but yeah, the, the uh, New England First Amendment Coalition put out a statement just saying that uh, the bill is unwise and unconstitutional. The First Amendment prevents government from taking over the educational, the editorial function of a newsroom and dictating how public issues are covered. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it was unwise, and it's astounding that it got as far as it did. This offers a window on legislative culture and not in a good way because it shows how there are a lot of bills that are ginned up by organizations and individuals from out of state. This was uh, came from some activist in the South who felt like he had been wronged by the media. But this is a real abridgment of the First Amendment, and it shows how a lot of lawmakers sign on to bills without even reading what they're signing on to. I remember when Stephen Costantino came back to testify in oversight on the 38 Studios issue, and he explained how Helio Mello, the former House Finance Chairman, signed on to the bill that paved the way for 38 Studios just because they sat next to one another, and that was a common courtesy, and, and that still happens, and that should not happen. They should read what they're signing on to. And what's so sort of outrageous about this bill, aside from every single word in it, and I think I think I think Ed was going to do a dramatic reading, but we'll see. Is that that'll be afterwards? That, We're going to have a right. bonus show. And by the way, it doesn't. It didn't just apply to covering crimes. It was like any controversy you cover, you must do this follow-up. So I mean, everything about it was ridiculous, but. The fact that it made it through so many steps, and we're still trying to figure out exactly what those steps were and what human beings or lawyers had their eyes on this, but the fact that the Legislative Council office drafted this, and right. we're still trying to find out which lawyer saw this, saw these words on this piece of paper, uh, they're in and protective thought custody right that now. this you was a bill that could be introduced. I it. mean, you, yeah. don't, you don't need to be a lawyer to know that this is the opposite of what the First Amendment and freedom of the press entails. How did this get through the drafting process? There are four senators with their names on it. It was introduced in the Senate and referred to Senate Judiciary, and it wasn't until 24 hours later when reporters saw it on the website that it became an issue and just sort of blew up and was almost instantly withdrawn once the sponsors realized what it was that they had introduced. So, so your point is, is spot on because a lot of times we've all talked to lawmakers who say, I had a constituent who wanted me to introduce yeah. this. So, I, you know, that's my job and it's going to get a vetting process or whatever. Even if you're even if you're a rep or a senator reading that, like you said, right. you would tell the constituent, I, I can't put my name on this, right? Right. And that's why they yeah. have legislative counsel because, yes, you're not all the lawmakers. They're are, lawyers, right? Right. They're lawyers, and, they, and not all the lawmakers. And you know, listen, maybe they have some non-lawyers in there that are drafting bills. I'd like to know because 
constituents ask their elected representatives to introduce bills all the time, and the elected representatives are not necessarily lawyers. So they do rely on the <coughs> staff of, I think there's part-time and full-time lawyers, to draft the bills for them and make them be legal, right? That's their job. Their job is to tell the lawmaker, you can't do this. This goes against the Constitution. This isn't a bill that can be introduced. Yeah, and, and just the context for this is it comes when the free press is under attack here in the United States and around the world. And for, you know, we need help uh, from our government to bolster a free press, not the, this kind of uh, ill-advised legislation. Right. I think that's why it's not funny. It, it, it's it, not. it kind of reads a satire, you, so you almost want to laugh when it says, you're immune from this section if you admit that you're fake news. That's actually a line in the bill. So it's almost yeah. funny, but it's it's not because it's so dangerous and because we live in a world, you know, the president does, he still goes to his rallies and says that we're the enemy of the American people. So in this environment, it just, it's just not funny. It's dangerous. Steph's exactly right. I mean, this could almost be an, a story in the onion, yeah. but it's a black eye for Senator Cano. She is considered a thoughtful person. I've talked to people who know her. They're surprised that she was the lead sponsor for this, but hopefully lawmakers will learn a lesson from this and bring some a closer read to the stuff that they're putting their names on. Absolutely. Okay, before we get on to uh, some national stuff, Steph had an interesting story a couple of weeks ago. I'll let you set the table about substitute teachers. And a lot of parents may not realize what's going on in their classroom during the day. So first of all, how did you, how did you hear about this? Well, there, you know, I, I'd heard about it from a couple of different parents. And there was actually one line in that Johns Hopkins report about Providence last year where one of the researchers just had this anecdote where it said, oh, there was a fifth grade student sitting in a kindergarten class because his teacher had jury duty. And it was just this one line in the, in the, in the report, and it didn't, they didn't expound on it. They didn't expound on whether this was like a big problem in the schools. But I was like, what, you know, kind of like, what the heck is that? And then I started hearing about it from parents and teachers in other districts. So that's when I started digging into this issue because I was like, this seems like it's more that widespread. That kids in one class are, are in that, other grades, that, right? That there's basically such a shortage of substitutes that schools have to, school districts across the state, not just Providence, but certainly Providence, are being forced to sort of do this patchwork of figuring out how are we going to have kids be, first of all, supervised, but also hopefully educated when their teacher is out and we don't have a substitute teacher available to cover their class. Um, and so there's this thing called the splits where they're literally taking kids and saying, okay, we're going to stick three in this classroom, three in this classroom, three in this classroom. And yes, they try to make it be the same grade. But I interviewed a parent for the story who said her daughter, who was in kindergarten at the time last year, was in a fifth grade classroom. So what learning is her daughter doing in that fifth grade classroom? It's not age appropriate, so very little. Um, and, you know, we learned a lot in the story, but it, it, it was just astounding to see what a shortage of subs there are and how that's affecting the students and also, of course, the teachers who are being forced to sort of try and cover and teach kids that aren't necessarily their own students. Good story by Steph, and one of my colleagues had reported uh, on how there's a general shortage of teachers mm -hmm. in Providence, too. That's another side of this coin, and it just shows how there are so many different aspects of improving public, e public edu education that are very tough in Providence. Ed's colleague Dan McGowan had a good story about how Randy Weingarten, the National mm -hmm. Teachers Union leader, exchanged some sharp text messages with Rhode Island's Education Commissioner on the contract issue. So it shows how when stuff gets real, there's a lot of resistance to change, and that's something that we all have to watch. Yeah, that, Dan had a great story uh, where he uh, got uh, some of the 
text back and forth between the union president and the commissioner, and you know some real tension there. Uh, and you don't usually get the, the the whole text fight, but uh, the commissioner offered it up. Yeah, because they, well, said, she well, w- <coughs> no, but she. So Randy Weingarten talked about yeah. it, and then so you know you play one off against Dan, the other. Dan, to right? his credit, when found the commissioner. Yeah, right. Well, no, she wasn't offering him in a press release, right, but he asked, right. and she could have said, "Hey, those are private," but she she yeah. chose but not. But they're to. not. They're not public to. record, and I think I, there was some backlash from. I saw like some un- other unions being like, "You shouldn't share private text messages." Yeah, it's public they are, business. They are. No, when you are talking about public business and you are a public official, your text messages are public. Yeah, so she's right. I think she's getting right. credit for yeah. those records would have been public, and she provided right. them right away. And, so and that, it's, and, that's and, absolutely great. And didn't waste, I guess, the, the time and money of the ride lawyers who probably would have fought Dan for the text. Yes. Yeah, but uh, although Dan would have won. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe the legislature should take this up. We've had a heck of a time trying to get email correspondence because I don't know if text, and you would know this from the First Amendment Coalition, but if you're trying to get emails back and forth on on a government server, that under the Access to Public Records Act is considered not available. Because remember when Sarah Palin's <coughs> all came yeah, out, we I made the request, yeah. and some some lawyer at the governor's office said, "Nope, those emails are not available." This oh, was well, an the issue. governor's office believes that they the, they believe the, they believe they're exempt, but other government officials. Yeah, but you'd be surprised. Some hide behind it. This was an issue, too, when uh, David Cicilline left as mayor in Providence and some of... The Category 5 hurricane. Exactly. And, you know, and and the information at that time was that emails about that were (laughs) not Mm. considered public records for some reason. And and that's what the Senate and the House should be passing legislation Mm -hmm. on, not not the uh, not trying to shut us down. But they should they should allow emails. I mean, that's how you communicate today. It's public business. No one's using a quill pen anymore. You know, it's an email. They should be strengthening the public records law, not, you know, it always frustrates me when the government officials look for every let's they look for the exemption. Right. That they can use to not give you the emails or the text messages, rather than looking for the way to give you the information. Yeah, that should be the biggest change right. that we need. Is they put the, the presumption onus on us. Open. It's actually right. the they attitude. Put the onus on us. You yeah. have to work it's to the get attitude them. of let's have our lawyers find a yeah. way not to give this to them. So then we, we have to sue them and do and appeal and yep. do all these things just to get something that's public. In this case, the commissioner. Apparently agreed that her texts were public and said, <coughs> yep, here you go, sure these are the texts. Well, she came from out of state. She hasn't been doing the Rhode Island <laughs> yeah, shuffle yeah, yeah, yeah. yet. All right, let's, uh, let's do outrages and then we will get to national politics. Mr. Donis, do you have an outrage this week? I do. The New York Times has done some good reporting on the growing <clears throat> use of facial recognition technology. It shows how kind of technology is getting ahead of civil liberties. Some law enforcement agencies have been use, able to use this to solve old cases. And it's understandable that they like this, but it also raises is serious questions about privacy, and it shows kind of how the horse is out of the barn before the implications have been fully thought through. Great. I've got more outrages than we have time, but <clears throat> one of them would be that um, the the po- the long lines in our two biggest states, California and Texas, uh, on election night were unacceptable. I mean, in this day and age, we should be able to, you know, we don't need Russia interfering. We're, we're messing it up ourselves. <laughs> we should do better than that. And, and Freedom Forum, uh, Freedom House, just put out a thing that said for the 14th year in a row, uh, the, the world's democracy is... Is, is taking a step back. We're going in the wrong direction around the world in, the, in that front, and, that, and that's, uh, that's an outrage. You know, my outrage was going to be this bill. It was so outrageous that we turned out to talk about it as a regular topic. But I just, again, you know, want to reiterate that if our government could, you know, help bolster freedom of the press rather than trying to tear us down, it was just, I, I want people to actually read it because every word of this bill 
is uh, frightening and should never occur in our democracy. All right. It was a big week. Just think of where Joe Biden was a week ago and where he is now. Joe Mentum, I guess, is the new hashtag. (laughs) I was riveted. I watched watched, uh, the coverage well into the night on Tuesday night. So I wonder where we go now. I mean, it's down. You look at who's dropped out. And uh, Elizabeth Warren was the latest yesterday. And so now it really is it's Sanders versus Biden. But I think Biden's setting himself up well, given that a lot of the establishment's coming towards him now. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, Warren chose not to make an endorsement yesterday, but he, he definitely some momentum. And it was interesting. We had the six legislative leaders on the stage the other day at the Chamber of Commerce event, and only Senator McCaffrey had said he was behind Biden. So, um But, yeah, no, he's definitely, uh, I think, at the edge at this point, but Bernie's right there. As it says, uh, Speaker Mattiello and Senator, uh, Senate President Ruggiero uh, backed uh, Amy Klobuchar when they were asked at that chamber event. And they, you know, there were some indications of an earlier lean toward Joe Biden. And then when Biden looked to be faltering, it scared some people away. But, you know, politics is a what happened in the last 48 hours. And it's not surprising on some level because Biden came into this with huge advantages, like great name recognition. And uh, but I think he was certainly bolstered by Jim Clyburn in South Carolina and that commanding victory there. And you think where we were a week ago today, Friday, hadn't had South Carolina yet, and that set him up beautifully because then Mm -hmm. that three days, and I honestly think you wonder what would have happened if Klobuchar and Buttigieg had not dropped out. Oh, yeah. Just like they said Warren's votes probably could have gone to Sanders. I mean, what would that have been? Yeah, and I actually don't think that all of Warren's supporters necessarily would vote for Bernie Sanders. She has a lot of supporters who who pick her because they aren't a fan of Bernie's. Well, I think that that people who, who agree with her progressive values but don't necessarily like Bernie's sort of anger um, and sort of the revolution sort of way of going about it, like Elizabeth Warren. So I don't think, with her dropping out, I don't think all of her voters are going to Bernie, although certainly a a large number of them will be. But I do think if Amy and Pete had not dropped out, um, we would have seen a lot of those more moderate votes split between Amy, Pete, and Joe Biden. I mean, Massachusetts was the biggest shock of Super Tuesday, Because Joe think. Biden didn't even go to Massachusetts, right? He did not right? go and to Tennessee. Massachusetts. I don't, even, go. I don't even know if he had a campaign office in Massachusetts. Um, he barely registered in the polls. Uh, he was, like, I think coming in fifth in certain polls. But but all of those polls, and as Ian, I think, tweeted yesterday, you know, they're a, they're a, they're a point in time. They're not <clears> predictors. And the polls took place before his big win in South Carolina and before, you know, and they had they had Amy, I mean, pardon me, they had Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders neck and neck to win Massachusetts. Amy and Pete dropped out. They endorsed Biden and he just surged to win Massachusetts in what I think was a huge shock to everyone, all people who observe politics. I, I think it just shows that people are deciding as they get out of the yeah. car and go to the voting booth. 100%. Almost. And mean, the early voters think of them <laughs> who had voted three days early before all those people dropped yeah. out. And clearly electability is a huge <laughs> issue on the minds yeah. of Democrats. You have Bernie Sanders continuing to rail against the Democratic establishment. And a lot of Democrats, you know, their top priority is displacing President Trump. So in a way, it's not surprising that they came home to Joe Biden. So the question is, <clears> I wonder, if, so if it goes his way, and clearly there's a, we've got a long way to go. But the Michigan governor, it's coming up. Uh, She just uh, endorsed him. You wonder if Obama comes off the bench, Hmm. you know, ultimately. Before, yeah, before after the, the nomination. Primary. No, after the well, nomination. After the nomination, I don't think there's any question that Obama's gonna going to campaign for whoever the Democratic nominee is. I think the question is whether he comes out before then. But um, I think he's gonna. I mean, I, it, he seems like he's gonna stay on the bench until 
after the nomination, and then he's going to campaign if it's Bernie, if it's Biden, and Bloomberg, if it's Tulsi, who's still in. And Bloomberg's <laughs> resources. Oh, you, yeah. huge. Yeah, yeah, huge. Yeah. And I would add this on Bloomberg, too. I mean, some people saw this as a big lapse for Governor Raimondo to endorse him early in a horse race way, <laughs> yes, but she will remember, uh, Bloomberg will remember that, and he might help her out with something in Rhode Island. Okay, yeah. to be continued, folks, it is a quick 30 minutes. Thank you for joining us. Steph, good to have you back. Ed and Ian, we will be back here next week. Hope you can join us as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week, everybody. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.